0: This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: Communication Mixed Down.
0: The show that takes a critical look at
2: contemporary media
1: and explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us.
2: social media to citizen journalism
1: to the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt.
0: It's all part of the Communication Mixdown.
1: Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30, Communication Mixdown, cranking up
2: right here on 3CR.
1: Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer. And with me tonight is a new member of the CMD crew, Bronwyn Cran. Welcome, Bronwyn. Tell us what's coming up.
0: Thanks, John. And in this edition of the show, we're taking a look at the state of journalism in Australia the good, the bad, and the ugly.
1: That's right. And to start, let's bracket together the bad and the ugly, because we want to begin with what some consider to be some of the most distasteful and, dare I say it, ugly kinds of journalism being practiced in this country. And I'm talking about the Australian newspaper. Emily Watkins is a media reporter at Crikey which is an independent online news and opinion publication. And she's been delving into the murky world of journalism as it's practiced at The Australian. She's recently published a 13-part series that investigates the workings of this national broadsheet. Welcome to Communication Mixdown, Emily.
3: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me.
1: Pleasure. And uh, you've just been involved in writing a 13-part series investigating the Australian newspaper. I wanted to ask something to start with. Why now?
3: Well, it's a good question. I suppose, if not now, when? Um, I I guess journalism is at a pretty tricky spot at the moment. Um, There's a lot that's been happening in the media this year in particular with redundancies, restructures, um, the Senate inquiry. um, And we just sort of wanted to look at at issues around the media in Australia. And this seemed like a really big one um, that we could and should be doing.
1: Now, you've described the Australian as waging a sort of, I guess you could call it a journalistic holy war. That's certainly what you called it. You say that they select certain enemies to attack, And what I thought I'd ask you is give us a couple of examples that really stood out and maybe even shocked you in their ferocity of attack.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess there's some obvious ones from the last couple of years. I mean, one of the most recent ones was against Yasmin abdel um, which you and your listeners are probably quite familiar with. But I think for me, it was looking back at some of the older ones that um, you, might, you might have forgotten or you might not have read at the time. Um, so, for example, there's an Indigenous academic called Larissa Barant who um, tweeted during Q&A back in the... Uh, I, it would have been the mid two thousands, and the the we didn't go into her case too much in the series itself, but there were thousands and thousands and thousands of words written about this single tweet during Q and A. That um, it was it was distasteful. It was a reference to a um, to a TV show that was on at the time. That probably a lot of Twitter users might have got, but maybe not the editors at the Australian. Um, And this single tweet sparked off this huge barrage of stories um, Mm. about uh, her... Uh, any sort of government funding, the fact that she was in a university position, um, any advisory councils she was on. Um, and it wasn't just that that went for a week or so. It was that this tweet will, would come up for years later in um, in the, the Australian's uh, cut and paste section. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Mm. They have a little section each day with bits and pieces from either online or other news stories. Um, And this tweet, which was obviously posted in a... um, It was ill-advised, but it was just a tweet, you know. It doesn't really... Changed the world, and the number of people that actually saw it probably would have been minimal before
1: Mm, all this mm, coverage,
3: mm, and you know, mm. the actual influence that that had. So, I think that was one of the ones that really struck me as something that I vaguely remembered from the time. But um, uh, looking back and looking at all that content in the one series of stories and just looking back at that altogether really struck me as really quite ferocious. So, there's something really insignificant
1: in the scheme of things. You've also uh, in your series you you spent a little bit of time talking about Gillian Triggs. Is 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 that was that a fairly important, uh, um, a significant outpouring from the Australian?
3: Yeah, well, I mean that's a huge one. I think um, it's something like thirty thousand words just in the Australian over the period of her tenure, which is a I mean that's like a novella. That's a huge <laughs> amount of words dedicated to. Um, to really um, trying to discredit someone who is mm. professionally extremely acclaimed she's you know mm. a law professor she's had multiple awards she's been given this independent role um, yeah which is which is huge um, I mean it was sort of all tied up in their uh, coverage of 18C, the provision in the Racial Discrimination Act, which Bill Leak, their cartoonist, um, was uh, pursued over, and also the um, Queensland University students as well. Yes, Um, I remember that, yes. Yeah, so it was sort of all tied up with that. She was head of the um, Human Rights Commission Mm, around mm. that time. um, And so... That was something that was really significant for them in in, for the Australian in pursuing her. But it it was sort of any anything she did would be covered. If she,
2: Mm. I
3: I think she did a speech sort of in the in the Blue Mountains of Sydney that maybe you would expect a local paper to cover, Mm. but Mm. you would never or Mm. local radio maybe, but you would never expect the national broadsheet to follow someone for a pretty standard speech. Um, and I mean, that's a pattern that we saw with other other people as well. For Yasmin abdel I think they um, mm. went to a Sydney Writers Festival talk she gave to high school students. Yes. Um, uh, it might have even been Gillian Triggs as well, who gave a talk in Hobart that um, yep. the Australian went down to cover. So that was one of the tactics that we did notice in looking at. A, a number of different campaigns was that they do, they they would tend to sweat the small stuff perhaps. so yes. go and cover things that um, might have some news value to a local paper or a special mm-hmm. interest um, outlet, but you wouldn't have expected the national broadsheet to be interested.
1: Now, a logical question: uh, if there is a journalistic war being waged by the Australian, which I th- I am getting the sense that that indeed it is. Who's the general commanding the troops, to keep rolling on with that metaphor, and what's, what's the motivation?
3: Well, The Australian is very much a traditional newspaper in that it's very much led by its editor-in-chief. And we started to see these campaigns really pick up under the editorship of Chris Mitchell who retired at the end of 2015. Um, So he was editor from 2002 and he released his memoir last year, I think, um, in any case after he retired And, and in his memoir and in other speeches and addresses he's given, he's always been extremely clear that he wanted The Australian to be a paper that stood for a set of values, and that believed in campaigning journalism. Um, and there is value in that, depending, I suppose, on the campaigns that you pick and the reasons for that. Mm. But he always said that his paper would reflect a certain set of values and act in the interests of a certain group of people. And that has always been, um, I guess, centre-right, probably fairly well-off, um, mm. So it's a very specific Did, audience yeah, this that,
1: is, that it's targeted at. So th- you're picking up on my next question, which is actually that you have written that the Australian readership is small, I'll just use your word, small, elderly, highly conservative, but you also go on to say that it doesn't, that doesn't mean the paper doesn't lack a certain degree of clout. And I, I was wondering if you could explain that to us.
3: Yeah, of course. So there's a couple of elements to that. And one is that um, the Australian might not have a lot of readers. So it's got something like, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but it's something like half the circulation of the Daily Telegraph, and it's probably about maybe a third um, of the held Sun on a daily, weekday um, level. So it's... But it does... Hold a lot of power over the news cycle. So um, when radio producers in the morning, doing breakfast radio or breakfast news um, or breakfast TV, for mm. example, mm. will will scour all the papers for um, what they'll be covering, what they'll be talking about in their morning interview, and and the Australian is our only national yep. general interest newspaper. Um, so it, it, it if If the the Australian is running um, Mm -hmm. several pages about Gillian Triggs or several stories on one day about Gillian Mm -hmm. Triggs and they're doing that day after day after day, it's only a matter of time before that becomes... Um, part of the general news cycle which a lot more people do consume so um, then it might be picked up for example by Andrew Bolt a columnist for um, Mm -hmm. the Herald Sun but also syndicated in the News Corp tabloids Um, and then uh, he might speak about it if he appears on Sky News, he's got a show on Sky News, um, or when he's on 2GB, one of the talkback stations in
2: mm.
3: um, in Sydney. Um, so it sort of has a lot of influence that way in that it drives the news cycle. And I mean, it's the same for other newspapers as well, but because it's a national paper and it is very heavily focused on politics and national mm. affairs mm. stories, um, it's sort of it ends up having a disproportionate effect, I think, and that's what mm, we mm. believe, on the national conversation. But then the other side of that is that um, powerful people read the Australian, so not just people that are controlling the conversation in the media, but also um, politicians, um, policymakers, um, and uh, other commentators. And if you're... Um, Uh, uh, academic or if you're um, someone in a a influential position perhaps and you have an Mm. opinion that you know the Australian won't like, if you see the way that Gillian Triggs has been treated or Tim Flannery or people who are very respected in their fields and are very good at what they do then I think you're going to think twice about whether Mm, you mm, speak mm, out or or even politicians you know, if you're you're relying on Mm. a, a the Australian and the media to get your message to your constituents, then, you know, you, I would imagine that you get to a point where you think, is it worth me speaking, speaking up or going out against sure. the Australian? Yep. At, you know, what's the cost benefit? I guess yep. so. There's a couple of elements in in which, in the way that they are, um, they're very influential beyond their circulation.
1: Emily, I've got lots of other questions. Uh, It would be very great to, it would be actually really nice to talk to you again about this and uh, wish we had some more time. But I want to, at the moment, I want to thank you so much for being on Communication Mixed Down and for your insights and also for that amazing series that you've just been involved in. Oh, thanks very
3: much. It's been my pleasure.
1: That was Emily Watkins. She's a media reporter at Crikey. It's the online news publication, and she was involved in writing an investigative series on the Australian newspaper, as you heard. And we will put the details on our website, the communi- Communication Mixdown website, back after this.
0: You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT. West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter.
2: The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join... Go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defence fund. That's P A T R E O N.com forward slash solidarity defence fund. A 3CR supporter.
0: You're with Communication Mixdown, and this week we're talking the good, the bad, and the ugly in Australian journalism. Well, we've talked about the bad and the ugly, let's now take a look at the potentially good. Andrea Carson is a lecturer in media and politics at Melbourne University. She's a former Age and ABC journalist. She's a keen observer and regular commentator on contemporary journalism, and she's with us now. Hi, Andrea. Good evening. Andrea, um, your most recent common pe- comment piece in The Conversation magazine was an explainer about public interest journalism. Now, this notion of journalism in the public interest is a, a tricky one. Could you unpack it briefly for us?
2: Yeah, well, that article was prompted because there is a public interest inquiry going on with the uh, Senate in the federal parliament at the moment, which reports in December. And the idea of public interest is that we all uh, at some point come together in uh, the public space called the public sphere, and that's where we're able to get our information from. And under one particular way of thinking about this, a democratic theory of thinking about this, we need to be able to get that information in order to make rational decisions. And those rational decisions are particularly important when it comes to deciding who's going to represent us when it comes to vote time. So that's the premise behind public interest. Journalism that we're able to get this quality information that informs political discourse, but as you have hinted in your introduction, uh, there's also some very bad examples of journalism that don 't always live up to that ideal
0: indeed andrea i'm interested in your view on the state of um, what we might call quality public interest journalism, particularly in in our country, Australia. How do you think, um, how is independent civic-minded journalism travelling at this moment? What's affecting it in Australia right now?
2: Well, there's some mixed views on this. I tend to be on the end of optimism rather than pessimism, even though there are lots of good reasons for being pessimistic. Some of the pessimistic reasons are that Australia has very concentrated media ownership, which means that particularly with our press, it's the most concentrated of any democracy. And it's been like that for a while, where we don't have too many owners that um, own the major newspapers and have extraordinary market share of newspaper readership in this country and the same is also true um, to a lesser degree of television and radio where we only have a few owners in the market. But the reason I'm more positive is because uh, the barriers to entry to be able to produce quality journalism are much lower than they used to be. Uh, anyone who has an internet connection and uh, has a keyboard, potentially, uh, whether it's on a mobile phone or on a laptop or an iPad, is able to disseminate content. Now, not all of that content is obviously going to be of high quality, but sometimes it is. And a recent study that um, I did at Melbourne University with a colleague, Dr Dennis Muller, looked at seven digital-only newsrooms, and this was last month. And what we found was that there were some really promising green shoots for journalism that... Many of the uh, companies that are digital only started off small with one or two operators and now some of those have up to 80 employees and The Guardian was that example. The majority of them had um, somewhere between uh, about 20 and 40 employees. So these ventures are growing and they've been around for the last five years and some of the journalism that they're producing is really quite innovative. They're using digital technologies, they're able to use data Uh, to tell stories in ways that are informative, interesting, engaging, and a little bit more irreverent than what we're used to in the past.
0: That's good news. That's good news, isn't it? So um, you mentioned the uh, Australian Senate's inquiry into the future of public interest journalism. That's been going on since May this year. Now, By May this year, we knew that misinformation or fake news circulated via Facebook and Twitter very probably influenced the outcome of the latest US election. Andrea, could you give us your take on why the Australian Senate established this current inquiry into public interest journalism? Was the Senate mainly concerned about the future political effects in Australia of online fake news?
2: I think it's got uh, five, about six different um, terms of reference, This and it's, an, it's a number of things. It's the rise of fake news um, coming particularly out of the States, but it's also been shown to occur in other parts of the world. The French elections um, were one of consternation about whether fake news was affecting uh, some of the coverage of Emmanuel Macron. Uh, And in Australia, we also hear the term fake news being bantered about by some of our politicians. So the study that we've been looking at at Melbourne Uni, um, a preliminary study shows that it's crossed all the different parties um, at the culprits who use the term fake news to try and delegitimize the role of mainstream media by calling things fake when... Often uh, it's just that there's a difference of opinion or they don't like the story or perhaps there's an innocent misreporting rather than something that is deliberate. But in terms of why the inquiry was called, part of that was to examine fake news, propaganda and public disinformation. That was one of the terms of reference. The other was to look at the future of public and community broadcasters in delivering public interest journalism, in, particularly in underservice markets like regional Australia. And one of the problems is that I'm sure listeners are very aware of over the last 20, 30 years, certainly this century, uh, media has lost revenues, traditional established media, and areas that get most affected by that are regional Australia, which um, it doesn't have the competition for new players to come in uh, quite the way that the, the metropolitans do. And so they can suffer with some under-reporting. Cuts to the ABC has come into that. 2014, under the Abbott government, the ABC lost uh, 8% of its budget and 10% of its workforce. So we have seen a very turbulent and uh, dynamic time going on for media markets. And, this was, and on top of this, of course, you've got really big technological companies that um, some might call media companies that don't define themselves that way, who are content aggregators, who are able to attract enormous advertising. And here I'm talking about Facebook and Google and those truly multinational um, giants in the market. So concern over... All these factors uh, caused uh, the Senate to call for this inquiry into what is the state of public interest journalism, what might be its future.
0: Thanks, Andrea. Um, I understand the inquiry has received a lot of submissions, it's held five public hearings. The inquiry report's due out very soon on December the 7th. To wind up, I'm interested in your hopes for the inquiry's recommendations. Just briefly, is there any one recommendation or approach you would really like to see in the final report?
2: Yeah, well, it has received a lot of submissions, I think over 70 at last count. I think there's no magic bullet on how to fund journalism and however it's funded it needs to be um, I think arm's length from uh, to have a degree of independence. Uh, I mean we've already got the ABC the public broadcaster which I think needs to be very well supported. One recommendation I would like to see is that its funding doesn't get further cut Uh, and that maybe there's some start-up funds that support the enthusiasm for um, people love journalism, they care about journalism, there's lots of people who are prepared to dip their toe in the water and, and, and try their hand at a start-up media organisation, and I think it would be good if there was some form of subsidisation to lend support to those smaller players so that they can compete in the very um, big world where Australia is an influx of international players coming in to its media market, so... I'm hoping there'll be something in that space, whether it's around tax deductibility or direct subsidisation um, through an independent committee that determines who's worthy and who's not. We'll have to wait and see.
0: Great, Andrea. And it would be good to see some of that money going to regional Australia, wouldn't it? Well, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Andrea Carson is a lecturer in media and politics at Melbourne University and an observer and commentator on contemporary journalist, journalism. And we've been talking today about the good, the bad and the ugly in Australian journalism. We'll post links to the media stories and the Senate inquiry you heard about in today's program on our website.
1: Thank you, Bronwyn. And uh, Bronwyn, wow, terrific. Uh, great input there. And, um, yeah, really good show today, I think. We uh, we really... Uh Explored some interesting things So that's it for Communication Mixdown this week We're here next week And uh, we have been talking about The state of journalism in Australia